Hi, and welcome to Messy in the Middle. I'm your host, Jessica Lee. This is a podcast featuring real women's stories about their journey, the messy part, the trials and tribulations to get from recurrent miscarriage and infertility to baby. Join us as we talk, cry, laugh, and get unbelievably vulnerable to feel less alone in the gang that no one wants to be a part of. Hello, it's so good to be back. I'm currently eight weeks postpartum. That time has absolutely flown. I've got no idea where it's gone. You would think with my days being so long, because I'm only getting like on a good night, it's about four hours broken sleep a night. Uh, you'd think that the time would go really slowly, but no, it's absolutely flown. Really excited to finally get this out and I've kind of got a bit of my mojo back and wanting to get things back up and running with the podcast. I do apologise that it has taken me so long to get this done, but I'm sure you guys can appreciate how time-consuming a newborn can be, plus having a toddler in the mix as well. My, I feel like I'm stretched really thin and it's really difficult for me to do everything pretty much. I think before you have babies you kind of idealise maternity leave and think you're going to have all this time up your sleeve but when you're breastfeeding especially I'm not sure um, bottle feeding's a little bit quicker but breastfeeding is time consuming so when you're just trying to get things done around feeds and while the baby sleeps it there's really not much time between you know him finishing a feed having a sleep and then he's ready for his next feed and it's the same thing like with during the night he wakes pretty much every three hours but it's the three hours as of the start of the feed not the end of the feed so he could be feeding for about an hour and then you know he needs to be burped really really well or he doesn't sleep and yeah so there's just not a lot of time to you know keep the house in order for one spend time with Thane and do like extracurricular activities so I do apologize Uh, it's been on my mind and there's been guilt around it I guess but I've just had to really release myself of all that pressure and I'm only one person and I'm doing the best that I can but hopefully I've got a little setup now where I can pretty much do everything from the couch rather than sitting in my office and editing and stuff so I think that's going to make things a lot easier I've got a um a bassinet set up in the lounge room for Noah so while he's sleeping I can have the laptop out and do my editing and whatever else I need to do so hopefully we're back up in action now and yeah today's episode is my birth story as requested by you guys and yeah I hope you find it interesting hello welcome back my name is Jessica Lee I'm your host of Messy in the Middle Today's episode is a bit of a different one. I did a poll on Instagram and you guys wanted to hear my birth story, so this is what it's going to be today. I will throw out a bit of a trigger warning that uh, it was pretty full on, so if you're pregnant and you're not ready to hear it, then that's completely okay. Save this one for a later date, but yeah, otherwise I hope you find it interesting, if nothing else. 
and I'm just really grateful that everything turned out okay and uh, that I'm here to tell the tale. So I wanted to backtrack a little bit just to give you guys some context about why I went into premature labour. So I'm just going to make the assumption that you guys know my backstory um, with the Ashermans and, and things like that. So I'm not going to go back that far. Um, but one of the risk factors with pregnancy when you've got Ashermans is that you're at higher risk of placenta accreta where the placenta grows into the uterine wall. Uh, this can generally be picked up on ultrasounds but sometimes not. My placenta was posterior so it was at the back um, which means it does make it harder to see whether accreta is happening or not. So that is part of the reasons why I was getting additional scans um, which I'm honestly so grateful for because if I hadn't I wouldn't have had any warning that I could be having an early baby. One of the other risk factors after having Ashman's treated is incompetent cervix and that just comes down to the amount of procedures that you have um, where your cervix needs to be dilated. So since the birth of my son, my firstborn, um, he's nearly three and a half now. So four weeks postpartum, I had a DNC with him due to retained products, so retained placenta, and that is the procedure which caused the Ashermans in the first place. So since his birth, I've had two DNCs and two hysteroscopies. Three of those happened within a 12-month period prior to this pregnancy and then obviously the first DNC after his birth was a couple of years beforehand. Generally, if you do have Ashermans um, and you've had multiple miscarriages and DNCs and, yeah, you're generally at a higher risk of your cervix not quite being as strong as what it would be if you hadn't have had those procedures done. So going into this pregnancy, I was aware of what to look out for and what I found really challenging um, when dealing with doctors is that they base so much of your current pregnancy on your previous one. So this is obviously the case if you've had a baby before. So I would often get asked, did my last baby go to term? Yes, he was overdue. So in the medical field, the likelihood of me having a premature baby like is reduced massively. So it was really important for me to keep advocating for myself. And even at the scans, um, like they were checking baby's growth and everything, they generally don't check your cervix after 24 weeks. They don't see the point. I was really lucky at my 28-week scan that I had a sonographer who had a preterm baby can't remember she must have had a had her baby at 28 weeks it was still like a viable baby um and they're completely okay now but she's like a real stickler for checking cervixes so at my 28 week scan that is when they first noticed my cervix shortening i probably should have written down figures but it was what they want it to be, 
they look at for it being above 2.5 centimetres and it was like 2.3, so it was just slightly less. Um, no funnelling and still closed. So it was just something that was noted on that on that scan. They didn't change how they were treating me. Throughout this pregnancy, I was also having appointments with obstetricians at the hospital. I feel like I was really well monitored throughout the pregnancy. I've got an amazing GP and I don't think I would have felt as comfortable throughout the pregnancy if it wasn't for her. So if you're on the Gold Coast, cannot recommend um, Dr. Frances Knight at Grace Private or any of the doctors at Grace Private, really. I felt really heard the whole way through with my concerns. So she was always a good sounding board when the things I got told from like the hospital doctors, I didn't quite agree with or didn't understand. So yeah, 28-week scan was my first of my additional scans outside of like the normal obstetric scans that you get. You normally don't have another scan past 20 weeks, which is absolutely crazy to me. Uh, so I feel very, very grateful that I was able to have these additional scans to help put my mind at ease. I did pay for a scan at 16 weeks to have my ch cervix checked and it was still like above three centimetres. It was fine. So yeah, started to shorten at 28 weeks. Nothing major, just something to be mindful of. It was also at the 28-week scan that they found that my placenta had an additional lobe. So the placenta was like a full piece and then it had this bit of connective tissue and, a, and an additional piece of placenta. Now, this is another really important thing to note and it was really important for my medical team to be aware of with the birth. So just to ensure that everything everything's removed when the placenta is delivered. So the 28-week scan was like highly beneficial. Two significant things were found, nothing that needed to be actioned straight away, but just good to know. So feeling good throughout the pregnancy, I actually really enjoyed being pregnant. I was never sure whether this was going to be my last baby or not. So I wanted to make sure that I did enjoy it as much as possible. And I really feel like I've achieved that, which I'm really happy about. I will admit that like the first trimester, I just want to forget about forever. The first trimester is freaking shit. Don't want to go back there. But like once I started to get a bump, once I started feeling him moving, I just, I enjoyed it. I loved it. I would feel so grateful that my placenta was at the back because I could feel so much more and I felt things so much earlier. With my first, my placenta was at the front and it definitely makes for a more anxious time. So then we get to my... 32-week scan. So this is four weeks later. Things are starting now to get a little bit more interesting. I'm still feeling great. Um, I was planning on working up to 36 weeks and yeah, my, my plans quickly started to change after this scan. So the I have you obviously have a different sonographer with each scan that you have, and this one didn't look at my placenta that I'm aware of or and another thing I'll note, apart from the placental lobe, there were no signs of a crater. So that was really, really reassuring. Um, we got to the 32-week scan. I went to this scan on my own and they noticed that my cervix had shortened even more 
but it had also started funneling. So from there, 28-week scan, it was at like 2.4 or 2.3. It was one of those. It was under the 2.5 mark that they look for. And then at the 32-week scan, I was down to 1.3 centimetres and with funneling. So the funneling happens from the top of the cervix where baby's head is. He was head down the whole way through the pregnancy. His head was also right on my cervix which probably didn't help the situation he was yeah really low and head butting up against it like constantly so his extra weight probably didn't help but it was from where his head is that on an ultrasound image it looks like a wine glass and then down into the rest of the cervix so after the scan, I had a phone call from the obstetrician at the hospital. Oh, sorry, I have forgotten something. After the 28-week scan, I was told to go back on the progesterone pessaries. I had gone off them at 25 weeks just because I was really sick of the side effects that I was getting. I'd been on progesterone since the moment I found out I was pregnant. I didn't have to stay on them for as long as I did, but in hindsight now it probably was a good thing. Same with the aspirin, the low-dose aspirin I stayed on the whole way through just for my own peace of mind more than anything else. I knew and I could articulate to my care providers that I knew that it wasn't medically required, but for my own mental health and peace of mind that I wanted to stay on it. So it was documented everywhere. My GP was completely okay with it. The benefits far outweighed any risks of staying on those things. So, but I did stop at 25 weeks because I was having recurrent thrush-like symptoms. I got tested for thrush many times and it always came back negative, but I would have the symptoms. Um, so I was sick of that by 25 weeks, got off them. By 28 weeks, I had to be back on the progesterone. Then come the 32-week scan, the cervix shortening with funneling, and I wasn't really sure what they were going to do about it. Uh, I wasn't quite sure of the seriousness of it and what it actually meant. So I had a call from the obstetrician at the hospital the same day. The doctor that I spoke to was really great and really informative and she recommended that I go into the hospital and get my first lot of steroid injections because once your cervix starts funneling, that's where the concern lies. The shortening like, yes, it's an issue and you want to keep an eye on it, but things really start to escalate once your cervix starts funneling because it creates a point of weakness. And as baby grows and gets heavier, yeah, your cervix is just more weak and it's not doing the job that it's really supposed to do as effectively as it should be. So I went in that day to get my first lot of steroid injections just in case he did come early. She was telling me that, it was just a precautionary measure. Um, they give steroids prior to 34 weeks gestation. After 34 weeks, they generally don't worry about it because the risks then outweigh the benefits of it um, later in childhood. I'm not going to get into that. I don't know enough about it to speak on it. Um, but if you are interested, feel free to do your own research. I just knew that I was prior to 34 weeks, so it was important that I had um, my steroid injection. So you have one on what, the first day and then 24 hours later you need to go in and have a second one. So did that. I also had a phone call with my GP. Oh no, it was a face-to-face -face 
consult with my GP two days later and telling her everything that's going on and it was at that point she's like you need to be working from home if you've got that capability you can't be going into work anymore where I park for work is a 10 minute walk to and from the car and she's like if you continue to do that you're going to go into labor on that walk you know it's it's not worth the risk um can you work from home I am so lucky that I've got a really understanding boss and we all knew what the risk factors were. wasn't quite convinced it was going to eventuate because the pregnancy had really been quite smooth sailing. Um, but my boss was also aware of what risk factors I was facing and was completely okay with me working from home. And yeah, that that was one of the things that I did ask the hospital doctor um, when I went in and had the steroids and like the most advice that they gave me was just take it easy but like don't go running or anything. So if you do if you are pregnant I think it's so important to have someone in your corner that you trust and respect their opinion. Especially when you're going through the public system, you're going to get a different doctor every time that you go in there. I think it's just really important to have someone that knows your story and your concerns and will be there to back you up so anything I got told from the hospital doctor I would relay it to my GP she was a specialist GP as well I might add so she wasn't just a regular run-of-the-mill GP she had a lot of obstetric training at the hospital where I gave birth and yeah was just really knowledgeable so she was like, nope, you're not allowed to do anything. You need to take it really, really easy and you need to work from home. So I started to do that as of 32 weeks and that was all fine. The only thing, like, I I love my job and I love my colleagues and it was really hard to not be around people and I did find working from home is like my feet and ankles really started to swell because I obviously wasn't moving as much as I I would be if I was actually at work Um, but other than that it was fine and so from there 32 weeks funneling shortening I made it through to 34 weeks now I don't know if this is a coincidence or what it's just the way these the timing has fallen it was like it happened on my weekly point I don't even know what you call it like 28-week scan, 32-week scan at 34 weeks is when I had a day I was working from home and I was just having constant backache and period-like pains. There was no pattern or anything to it. It was just constant and it was there. So I didn't really do anything about it. I didn't even tell my husband because I knew that he would freak out and he um, not long started a new job and he wouldn't be getting home till seven he doesn't finish work sorry till 7 p.m so didn't say anything to him all day got he got home and done you know dinner and bath and bed routine with our eldest and he was in the shower and like I just uh want to tell you something nothing to freak out about I'm just making you aware that this is what I've been feeling all day and straight away he's like you need to go into the hospital you need to get checked out so uh my mum looked after our son go into hospital and you know you kind of feel like you're kind of wasting time like 
there was something happening for sure, but like nothing was happening also at the same time. But going into the hospital, this became a really um, important part of the story, I guess. So when you go into the hospital, they put you on the CTG monitor and they monitor the baby and your kicks and see if you're having any tightenings or whatever. I was having a few contractions, but uh, nothing that I could really identify within myself. The doctor that I saw was amazing and she was also the doctor who ended up being there at my birth. She did a, they do like an internal examination. They put in the um, speculum just to see if they can see your cervix. They did that. They also took a swab. It's called a fibronectin test and that's to test whether you are likely to go into labour like within the next two weeks and that swab came back positive. <laughs> so that was the first kind of instance where it was like, oh, holy shit, we're going to have this baby early. The doctor also did an internal exam herself and she noted that I was two centimetres dilated and fully effaced. Again, all this information together was just pinpointing to the fact that, okay, we're going to have an early baby how early is it going to be? That's anyone's guess. So that night at 34 weeks, they did um, give me another steroid injection, um, just the one. So by this point, I'd had three. And I truly believe that that was purely the reason that he is doing as well as he is, is because we were able to prepare a little bit. They did have me stay overnight. I don't know if they thought I was going to like go into labour that night or what. Um, they put me in a birth suite initially uh, to be monitored. Uh, I sent Drew home because like there's no point hanging around um, if he didn't need to. Like one of us may as well get a good night's sleep. So yeah, sent him home, spent until, I don't know, I think it was about 3am in the birth suite. Nothing was happening uh, so then they sent me to the ward and I did end up going home the next day and they put it down to ir irritable uterus. Now, that was something that I just had to kind of smile and nod. I didn't truly believe that that was what was going on. It, I mean, it could have been, but, you know, I just had this feeling that they obviously had to give me some kind of explanation, but at the end of the day... It was the start of early labour. So sent me home, irritable uterus, okay, sure, no worries. Yes, I was having tightenings or contractions, but nothing was methodical, like there was no consistency to it. At this stage, I also made arrangements with work to finish early. So I was planning on working up to, I think it was just over 36 weeks and then... I changed it to bring it forward a couple of weeks. So I was going to be 35. I must have been finishing closer to 37 and then I brought it forward to 35 in the hope that I would <laughs> get a bit of a break and have some time to myself before he made his appearance. Um, but I will get to that. So I was had the rest of the week off work because this happened on a Wednesday night, discharged home on the Thursday, Fridays I have off work anyway. And... We really would have loved to have made it to 36 weeks, but didn't quite get there. 
we ended up going back into hospital on that Friday night actually as well because I was having contractions and there was a little bit more rhythm and consistency to it. But they'd be like 10 minutes apart and not really get any closer than that. And then they'd spread out to 15, 20, 30 minutes. Um, So we were starting, the advice that we'd gotten, sorry, is as soon as I feel something happening, go into the hospital to get checked because it could happen really quickly. I could also experience a silent labour because apparently that can be really common within cervix that isn't doing its job properly is that it just opens. You don't even realise until you're like five centimetres dilated, um, your water's broken and it, yeah, your baby's coming out. So we were definitely living on the edge and any kind of niggle, we were highly advised to go into the hospital. So we did go in that Friday after being discharged on the Thursday. Um, Again, they hook you up to the monitors, see what's going on. But we quickly realised that, you know, they're not going to do anything until something's actually happening. So there's absolutely no point in being there unless my contractions are, like, getting close together um, or my waters have broken. I wasn't told this by anyone specifically. It's just something that I kind of figured out on my own. Um, otherwise I would have been in there nearly every day because I was starting to get, I'd pretty much have a day full of contractions and then the next day would kind of ease off and not really be anything. And then another day of contraction. It was kind of going like that for the next week. And then we come to 35 weeks. I never went into spontaneous labor with my first. I was induced with him. Um, so you really are living in this limbo land of not knowing what to expect. And you're kind of a ticking time bomb and Every time you leave the house, you have these, you know, imaginary role plays in your head like, what am I going to do if my waters break right now? And I'd kind of be playing this game everywhere I went. And there were times of the day where it would have been ideal to for my waters to have broken because, you know, other people could look after Thane and I could, you know, get myself to the hospital or call an ambulance if I was home by myself like but it was in the afternoon when I had to pick up Thane from daycare or and I've like just completely by myself with a child be like this would not be ideal what the hell would I do and I don't even know I still don't have an answer for that but thankfully that is not how it played out the way that it did play out I don't think could have been any more perfect to be honest Um, so the morning of the 11th of October, 2023, oh, 35 weeks on the dot and my alarm goes off at five because I've got to get Thane to daycare and get ready for work. I start at seven and I roll over in bed and I just feel something like you know 35 weeks pregnant first thing in the morning kind of busting to pee it's like oh god did I just weigh myself a little I don't know go to the toilet and one thing that I've heard a lot of people say is that if it's your waters you won't be able to like stop the flow like you can when you're weighing so I was trying to do that and I was like okay well the flow is stopping so that it just must have been nothing maybe there was just some you know extra discharge or whatever maybe I did wean myself a little bit who knows um but I could stop the flow so I didn't really think too much of it hop in the shower and get ready get Thane up get him ready 
and it would have been, I don't know, between 6, 6.30, I'm standing in the kitchen and getting Thane's breakfast ready and I felt something else and I'm like, oh, I think this is my waters because that is not usual and I've never experienced that before. It wasn't like a huge gush, it was just the best way to describe it is when you've got your period or or you know that you're bleeding and you just feel something leave your body and like I the closest thing that I can liken that to is when you're losing a bit of blood and you just feel it come out that's that's what it felt like to me so I go to the toilet again and my liner I was kind of like it's between a liner and a pad it's like not as thin as a liner but not as like thick and heavy duty as a pad been wearing these liners throughout the whole pregnancy because of the progesterone pessaries so yeah not a stranger to liners and it it seemed a lot wetter than what it normally would be so I go to my husband and like you need to get in the shower and get ready I think we need to go to the hospital I think my waters have broken he's like (laughs) he goes into panic stations and I'm like look just calm down we're gonna get my mum to take to daycare I don't want him thinking that there's anything up like apart from her taking him to to daycare I want his day to be as normal as possible uh, which is what we did got him ready and she left to take him and we got ready to to go in the car I my hospital bags had been packed for a couple of weeks at this stage because I knew like it was highly likely that this guy was going to make an early appearance and I always find it quite funny that everyone blames the baby for coming early. Like, oh, he's, you know, impatient and wants to get here. I was like, mm, I think it's more my fault than his. Like, it's my cervix that's not holding up. It's not really him wanting to, you know, announce his arrival five weeks early. But anywho, so we get to the hospital about seven in the morning and really quiet that time of day. It was great. We could go straight in. Again, they put me on the monitor. Um, I hadn't had any contractions up to this point. As I was laying there, I did start to have some some big ones, but again, it was nothing consistent. I had I do, did have a student midwife as well, and also cannot recommend having one highly enough. Mine was amazing. Yeah, she was just there every step of the way. Um, so yeah, I let her know, and she was going to come into the hospital. So eventually I get checked by a doctor, put the speculum in. The speculum's not even in for like two seconds. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's your waters. And I'm like, how can you tell that quickly? She's like, I can see it. (laughs) So, okay. And then she like pulled it out and in the scoop part of the speculum is just like water. I was like, oh, yeah, there it is. And she also did an internal exam and said I was four centimetres dilated and fully effaced. She's like, I think you're going to have a baby today. Like, you are going to have a baby. There was no thinking about it. She's like, you're going to have a baby today. It's like, holy shit, this is not what I expected when I woke up this morning. I also was group B strep positive. So it's also something that's very common um, with women in pregnancy. It's also really controversial, so I'm not going to get into it. I did opt for the antibiotics, especially facing the fact that I was going to have a 35-week-old baby 
and I'm just I'm not going to do anything to put him at risk so it was really a no-brainer for me to to get on the antibiotics straight away so no, nothing was passed on to him because it does make babies very very sick if they contract it so yes cannula had to go in had my first round of antibiotics and I was moved to a birth suite. My student midwife arrived uh, in this time and the midwife that I had on shift was, she was just incredible, honestly. The team that I had around me, I cannot fault. I felt so supported the whole way through. It was a really different experience to my labour with Thane, um, just in how supported that I felt and how much guidance I received and I guess also in my confidence with what I wanted and my first it was like I didn't know what to do (laughs) Um, but I was a lot more confident this time around knowing that I wanted to move around I wanted to you know bounce on the birth ball and but I I guess yeah that just comes with (laughs) with confidence and having done have having had done it before but I did have a great team around me and felt supported in whatever I wanted to do. Water birth was obviously off the table. Even going in the shower wasn't highly advisable, which was fine because I actually didn't, I love the water and I find it super calming and that, but it's not something that I felt like I needed during my labor. The only condition that was placed upon me was that when I was ready to birth him that I had to be on the bed. And we all know that that's not the best position to have a baby, but Due to the fact that he was going to be so small, it was the safest option for everyone uh, that I be on the bed. So in the birth suite now, it was it was just a crazy morning to be honest with you. I'm moving around, we've got some music on, we're talking and had a little bit to eat, not that I was overly hungry. And my midwife had said that she would check me again at 1.30. We didn't feel like my waters had completely broken, so she was going to break those at the 1.30 check. Uh, it, there was also talks about going on the Sintosin drip just to kind of get things moving, but we were just going to monitor that and see how I went once once waters had broken. So I was having some contractions um, between, I don't know what time I got to the birth suite, maybe around 8-ish, so from 8 to 1.30. It was really just cruisy. Yeah, I could do this all day, every day. <laughs> That's how it felt. I don't think I was prepared for it to get as intense as it was, and I will get into my mindset once things really kicked off. So 1.30 came and she did an internal examination and I was still 4 centimetres, um, but she did get in there and break the rest of my waters. It didn't feel like a huge gush or anything. Like I really felt it come out with Bane. I don't know if it's because I had been leaking prior to that or what, but yeah, there was obviously still some more there to break and she did that. And it was once those had been broken that the contractions really started to ramp up. I had sent Drew downstairs to go get something to eat. I can't remember what part he missed. Nothing major, but he didn't miss anything major, but he did miss something that we had discussed. But um, I was on the birth ball and my student midwife had started timing contractions because they just wanted to see where I was at and they were getting the um, Sintosin drip ready. And my student midwife was like, I don't think she needs the drip at all. Like I was already getting the 
three and ten, I think, is what they look for. And it it did start to become a real mental game. And I don't think you should compare labors, um, but I was definitely in my head about you know this hurts. It it okay. So with my labor with Thane was definitely more of a back labor. After fourteen hours, I asked for an epidural because I just got to a point where I couldn't breathe through the contractions anymore. I didn't want an epidural with this one straight off the bat. I did want to see what I could do. I definitely wasn't opposed to it, but I knew as soon as I started to get any pain across my back, that is the point where I'd want an epidural. So I'm breathing through these contractions. I had a a labour comb, which was like literally piercing holes in my hand. I was squeezing it so tight. I don't know if it helped. I really don't. I was just using it as a, as a method of distraction and I was just really trying to concentrate on my breathing. Intermittently, I would have Drew asking me, you know, do you want any pain relief? Like, are you ready for it? And I felt like that's all he was like giving me. I, I assume from his perspective that... I looked like I was in pain because I was. Like the pain was very concentrated to my lower pelvis, it was very strong, no back pain, but just very strong and concentrated to my pelvis. So it was a different experience to have to breathe through that pain. And I was definitely in my head, I was in my head saying like I made it 14 hours with Thane without asking for an epidural like, it's been maybe an hour. I wasn't keeping that close of an eye on the time, but I was like pretty much telling myself not to be a fucking pussy. I don't need an epidural. And, yeah, just to breathe through it. <laughs> and he asked me again and I just turned to him and said, look, you know what I really need from you is just some love and encouragement and some support. Like I will let you know when I can't take any more and that I need an epidural. He was fine. He was good with that. I had got the gas. I don't remember specifically asking for it. It may have even been my student midwife suggesting, hey, do you want to try the gas? I personally don't feel like the gas takes the pain away. But again, it's just another tool to help breathe through those contractions. It doesn't make me feel sick or anything. It does give you a little bit of a lightheaded feeling. But apart from that, it just helps me focus on my breathing. So I'm on the side of the bed on the birthing ball. I'm leaning up against the bed and I'm like just like trying to find a comfortable position, breathing through the contractions. Things are getting super intense. It starts to become a really out-of-body experience. Like I just time didn't exist I was just I go really inwards I think when I'm in labor um I don't know what's going on around me there was music playing and I remember just I couldn't even tell you what the song was but I just heard this song and it was beautiful and I remember like I'm crying and I suddenly feel this involuntary urge to push and like my first actually kind of thought was I need a I think I need a poo but I don't know how I'm going to get to the toilet. And then I had this really intense pain go across the back of my hips and it was at that point I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I need an epidural. Oh, sorry, that happened first. I'm tense pain across my hips. I'm done. 
And I look back now and that was when I was transitioning because like not even a second later, I'm like, I'm yelling out to my midwife. I feel like I'm pushing. (laughs) She had said to me like, yep, about the epidural, no worries, you're next. (laughs) Next minute I'm yelling out, I feel like I'm pushing. And she's like, you need to get on the bed. And I looked at the bed and there's my iPad on there with the music playing and there's phones and I just want to wipe the bed off so I can get up there. But the bed also had to be lowered so I could get up there. (laughs) So I don't even know how all that happened. I somehow climbed up onto the bed. The team leader, midwife, comes in and she goes, "Um, I think we're going to have a baby instead of an epidural. And I'm like, in my head, I just wanted to swear at her. I was in so much pain and I didn't think I could do it. I didn't know how I was going to push a baby out and feel everything and survive it. I was still very much out of my body I was kind of laying in this really kind of twisted way just to kind of get the pain out of my hips. And earlier on in the day, my when before my waters were completely broken at 1.30, one of the things the midwife did say is like, when it does come time to push, just make sure that you're listening to us um, and we'll give instructions of when to push and, and whatever because, you know, if the baby comes out too fast, one, it's not good for them, but there's also a high risk of tearing and and everything like that. So I did have that in the back of my mind, um, but I just can't describe how my body just took over. It wasn't me in charge anymore. All all I was trying to focus on was breathing. Um, As far as the pushing went, my body was just doing that. I was not consciously pushing at all. My student midwife, it had already been pre-planned that she was going to catch the baby. Um, The team leader midwife was there. I'm not sure where my other midwife was at this stage. She was in the room somewhere. But, you know, they're telling me to to breathe. They were telling me to push at some intervals. And I birthed him and I did it without an epidural. And I was so bloody proud of myself. And I'll just put it in there that the pushing him out was not even half as bad as the contractions leading up to that. And I don't know if that's just because he was really small or what, but, yeah, I would birth him again. I would do that all over again. So things really started to kick off at 1.30 p.m. and he was born at 10 to 4 that afternoon. So it was an insanely quick labour. From the moment I said I am feel like I'm pushing to the time that he was out was 10 minutes. Like it was crazy fast. He was placed on my chest straight after I birthed him. He was crying, which was a huge relief. There were moments where he would not make any noise at all and um, we did have the paediatric doctors in there as well because they knew he was the 35-weeker and that was always going to be the plan. So they just like kind of rub him and get him to cry and then I was like, okay, we need to take him over here. We just need to – they didn't even put him on – oxygen it was just like an airflow just to help his lungs inflate drew was over with the baby and everything is fine with me at this at this stage we were getting ready to birth the placenta it was always part of the plan that we would do medical management of my placenta just to help everything come out so i was given the i think it's a syntocin shot 
that they put into your leg to help birth the placenta. So they did that and I'm just laying on the bed. I'm in relief. I'm fucking proud of myself. Um, I'm looking over at Drew and Noah and, you know, they're telling me he's perfect, he's fine, he's not going to have to have this oxygen or airflow for very long at all. He's, like, doing amazingly well. And then at the other end of the spectrum, I've got the team leader midwife and my student midwife between my legs (laughs) trying to get the placenta out. It did take a long time. They were kind of like every now and again tugging it just to see if there was any give and if there wouldn't be. And it took about 20 minutes in total for it to come out. I feel like that is longer than normal after getting the the shot, but I don't know for sure. Um, just the way that they were talking, it just made it seem like this is taking a little while. And like the team leader midwife was giving instructions to my student midwife, like, you know, don't pull too hard because the cord can snap. And like, <laughs> okay, that 20 minutes really seemed like a blur. I only had Noah on my chest for maybe two minutes if that and then after 20 minutes my placenta came out and that's when fuck (laughs) sorry was not expecting to get fucking so emotional right off the bat um that's when shit really started to get real so I felt the placenta come out and then there was just all this blood I can't remember exactly what the midwives were doing whether they were pushing on my tummy to help get my uterus to contract. But I remember, like, I'm laying on my back. My legs are, like, bent up on the bed. And I look down at my foot and I just see all this blood flow past my foot like a river going around rocks or something and off the edge of the bed. And... Like they were staying super, super calm, but I like I knew what was going on. Like I knew it wasn't good. And they're like, well, you're just losing a little bit more blood than what we like. Um, they started to give me all this medication to help stop the bleeding. And, yeah, the team leader midwife was like, yeah, you're just losing a little bit more blood than what we'd like to see. We're just going to press the call button and there are going to be all these doctors come in like there's no need to worry they are all here to help you all these doctors come in I've got Drew fucking his his instructions were to always stay with the baby and he was standing over where like the assessment area with where the baby is and he's like with him but he's got his arm stretched out holding my hand like, I'm starting to get the shakes, like, uncontrollably. I've got a doctor, like, pretty much sitting on the bed, just pressing down on my uterus to help it contract. I'm being given all these medications. Like, they've got a quota of what they're allowed to give you in birth suite. I had all of it. Whatever they were allowed to give me, they would. Um, then... Drew, I just kept saying, Drew, you stay with him. Like, I'm okay, you stay with him. And then I've got I um, the hand that he was holding, my left hand, like my arm is off the edge of the bed and I've got this doctor trying to put another cannula in so they could do whatever the hell that they were doing. Um, I look over, like, down 
down the bed to the other side of the room, Drew is just watching all this shit happen with like this look of shock and worry and concern on his face. He was doing skin to skin with Noah. I've got this other doctor in my ear saying, okay, you're going to be taken to surgery so we can get this bleeding under control. I don't know what else she told me apart from the fact that, you know, worst case scenario, we might have to do a hysterectomy. And like, you can't fucking argue with that. We, um, We knew going into this that this was a possible outcome following the birth and as much as you can you can prepare as much as you like but once you're in it like fuck I thought I was gonna die I was so scared (laughs) no I had to go to special the special care nursery so Drew left with him and the only thing that he knew was that I had to go to surgery they gave me this last medication and the doctor that I'd seen um the week before at 34 weeks and she's she was my doctor on that night and I'm just so grateful to her and she's like she's just watching 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 and she's like okay no stop the bleeding is slowing down so we're not going to take you to surgery right now um but we are just going to monitor you for the next bit and just see how it goes because they still weren't sure what was causing the bleeding at this stage I was being monitored for the next two hours. Must have been longer. Well, I don't know. I feel like it was two hours that I was being monitored for. The blood loss had slowed down, but not completely, and it hadn't slowed down to a rate that they would have liked. And, yeah, the decision was made that I do go into surgery. I had the doctor come back in, and she's like... Um, you know, the other doctor ran through the risks and and whatever. Going into surgery, do you remember or would you like me to go through it again? It's like, no, can you please go through it again? It's all a blur. I don't know what's going on. And she just ran through like, okay, best case scenario, this is the action that we're going to take through to worst case scenario. It does result in a hysterectomy. Um, again, knew this was a possibility and the only thing that I'd requested if it did come down to that is just, save my ovaries but the initial plan was to get into surgery try and do a manual removal insert a balloon and then the balloon gets removed the next day and then if it's still bleeding like the the process that they do just like increases with intensity or whatever so it was about seven thirty at night now not forgetting that i had my baby at 10 to 4 and i'd seen him for two minutes And I was in so much pain that I was almost relieved that I was going into surgery and I was being put under general anaesthetic and I was just looking forward to the pain stopping. Like my stomach felt bruised from the doctor who had just like to, you know, had to constantly do compressions on it to help slow down the bleeding. I was getting like the afterbirth pains and I was just, everything hurt. And I was just, yeah, looking forward to being put to sleep and all that pain going away. So get wheeled into surgery. I'm also, like, so grateful that it wasn't being done as an emergency surgery because I don't think um, my uterus would have fared as well as it had 
if I was being taken in as an emergency. So things were a lot calmer. My doctor was amazing. She was holding my hand as they were putting me to sleep. I wake up in recovery and my student midwife as well has stayed with me every freaking step of the way and she was able to come into theatre with me which was amazing because I knew then exactly what had happened because I didn't see a doctor after that in recovery but I had her and she's said that there was a massive blood clot that they removed and she was like making a ball shape with her hands like massive and also that bit of placental lobe hadn't come out even though like my midwives had looked at the placenta and it did look like it had come out in one piece that placental lobe bit hadn't and it was yeah still in there and they removed that she didn't have to insert the balloon or anything um, they were happy with, like, the bleeding had really significantly slowed down after those things were removed. And it was a manual removal as well, which <laughs> I feel <laughs> it reminds me of um, vets birthing cows and stuff where they put your hand right up there. And that's what she did. But I just birthed a baby. So, yeah, her hand went right into my uterus and removed the blood clot and that little bit of placenta. And honestly, it's the best case scenario because I didn't need a DNC and there was no sharp instruments used inside my uterus. So is my scarring going to return? I don't know yet, but it was honestly the best case scenario moving forward that my uterus had as minimal damage as possible. So once I'm taken back to the ward, I'm getting like all geared up to go to special care, see my baby, only to be told that I can't see him yet because I just had a general anaesthetic and we need to wait two to three hours. What time was it? It must have been nine o'clock at night and I still had to wait two to three hours before I could see my baby. Longest two hours of my life. Um, my student midwife went and got Drew and he came up and saw me and was telling me that, you know, Noah is doing amazing and took photos for me and and yeah, it was like obviously comforting to know that he was completely okay, but also so hard that I didn't get that time with him straight after birth to you know, do that initial skin to skin and do the boob crawl and all the rest of it that you hope for. But at the end of the day, like, oh, he was okay and I was okay. I'd lost in total two, I think it was like 2.2 litres of blood, which is hugely significant miraculously I haven't needed a blood transfusion or an iron infusion prior to birth my hemoglobin levels were like ridiculously good um, and somehow they held up throughout all that I don't know what <laughs> I can give credit to for that but I was on iron supplements as of I don't know 26 weeks I think um, so I don't know if that helped or or what but just so lucky like I had a doctor come in the next day and say that anyone else losing over two liters of blood would have died but the fact that when you're pregnant your body produces more blood volume that you know I was very lucky very lucky to have made it and yeah feel so freaking grateful and that he is doing okay because I guess <sighs> as scary as the birth was for me like going into labor knowing that I'm gonna have a baby five weeks early and having no idea of how he was going to be because he was always measuring on the smaller side. He was born at 2.13 kilos or 4 pounds 11 ounces. Like he's tiny 
and I didn't know that he was going to be okay. But he's just, he's a little champion and he's just kicking goals and he hasn't taken a backward step the whole way. We spent six days in special care, but he hasn't needed any extra of like breathing assistance or or anything like he's got a feeding tube, but that's because, you know, he's just not strong enough to breastfeed completely himself um, to get what he needs. But he's lat- he was latching to the boobs so early, which <laughs> every nurse that we had in special care kept saying that he he's acting like a 38-weeker, not a 35-weeker, like. He's just a real strong little boy. So as much as, I, you know, I don't know how much of his birth was his decision or what, but he was ready. He was. He's just really tiny, but he was, he was ready to enter this world. And we were lucky enough after six days in special care to be put on a neonatal early discharge program. So they've taught me how to do his food um, tube feeds and I have a nurse come out to the house every um every two days and they weigh him and he's honestly just going from strength to strength and he's never lost weight. He's now getting more, you know, breastfeeds without top-ups and he had a tongue tie and that was given a little snip when he was 37 and 2, so just over two weeks old. Um, So, yeah, he's just only going to get better and stronger at breastfeeding and we're hopefully hoping that we're only going to need another week or so on this early discharge program and then we'll be on our own and, you know, able to kind of be a little bit more relaxed. He's on a very strict three-hourly schedule and I'm getting four hours broken sleep a night and on our bad nights I'm only getting about two hours sleep. But it's all worth it for him to be okay and for him to be thriving as he is. Like. I know that, you know, this is just a phase and I'm not always going to feel this tired and emotional and I'm enjoying all this extra time that I get to spend on him one-on-one in the dark hours of the night. And, yeah, we had a little bit of lost time to make up for because it ended up being seven hours from the time I gave, I think it was seven hours, from the time I gave birth to when I got to hold him again. But we're here. (laughs) Would I go back again? I can't say no. I honestly can't. Like, I actually really loved his birth. It was hard and intense, um, but it was also quick and beautiful. And I was, yeah, super, super proud of myself in the moment that he he came out. And and this is like, if you need an epidural, fucking go for it. Like, there's this isn't anything about you know anything negative towards epidurals I had one with my first it was just that that was my mental thing like I didn't want to ask for one until I really had to and the fact that I did ask for one and I couldn't have it and I got through it and it wasn't as bad as I thought you know yeah it was just something that I was really proud of myself for yeah so would I do it again maybe it's a maybe another pregnancy would be in insanely scary I would imagine I'd be classified as high risk now having a preterm baby and my cervix not being great um I would want way more scans and to have a baby any earlier than 35 weeks like I really just don't wish that upon anyone like the time you need to spend in special care or the families that you need to spend time in NICU it's really hard and I didn't understand how difficult and challenging that is until I had to go through it myself especially when you've got another child at home 
I was seeing Thane briefly once a day. He didn't understand why I I wasn't home and, you know, he was it was taking three adults to do the work that I would normally do on my own. Um, and I did mention, like, you guys better appreciate me when I come home. <laughs> but, no, it's amazing being home and being a little family and Thane has just been incredible. He's an incredible big brother. Uh, he's adapted to this like a fish to water. Uh, there has been no jealousy. There has been no tantrums when I'm feeding Noah and I say to him, I can't help you right now, just give me a few minutes to finish off and and whatever and then I can be with you. And he just takes it and, yeah, sure, no worries. And it's been incredible and I'm really, really grateful for that. And I'm not sure if that's just him or he. there's just a really, that like, that's just the perfect age gap. I don't know. But thank you for listening and... It was full on and I don't know that I was able to capture the severity of it or how scary it actually was in the moment to be like losing so much blood and getting the shakes and watching my husband and baby leave the room and being left on my own. But yeah, here we are to tell the tale. So grateful to be here. I'm so lucky to have this little one in my arms. All right, I'm going to end it there. He is due for a feed. And hopefully we'll be back up and running with regular episodes very soon. Um, I'm just taking it day by day. Um, I'm very, very tired. Um, But, yeah, just doing what I can. And I really appreciate uh, all the love and understanding I've been receiving. So I will see you guys soon. Okay, so this is an additional recording added on to the end of um, my birth story. I was really hoping that what I had said was the end of it and happy to go into newborn days, but unfortunately not. At three weeks postpartum, my bleeding had started to increase and I wasn't really thinking too much of it, but then I started to pass large clots and I was like oh, okay I know that's not normal and I know that I need to go back into the hospital and get that checked out so I think this was a Thursday uh, dropped Thane at daycare go into the hospital and I was I guess lucky enough that I'd passed another couple of big clots while I was there um, being assessed So they decided to, and with my history as well, uh, they decided to get me in for an ultrasound. And seriously, after having uh, the manual sleep, not manual sleep, (laughs) got sleep on the brain, manual sweep after birth, I, it was just so far out of my realm of possibility that I could possibly have retained placenta again. I thought that would have cleared me out and, you know, Bob's your uncle, my uterus is all clear and all fine. So they took me in for an ultrasound and she could see that there was something in there but couldn't really identify what. Uh, You can't tell that it's placenta on ultrasound. Uh, I did stay overnight and the next day I was booked in for surgery to have a DNC. Now this is the absolute last thing that I wanted because that's what caused my Ashermans in the first place. I had a DNC at four weeks postpartum with Thane. So 
I mean, the medical team was all very aware of this and I requested that the DNC be done under ultrasound guidance rather than going in blind and they were really happy to accommodate that. So that, I mean, you're just making the best out of a shitty situation. Now, the next morning I had the surgical team, like they go and do their rounds and the surgeon came and spoke to me. And it was a really scary conversation, to be honest. Uh, He said that he'd read my history and that it was extensive. And there was a few things that he was concerned about. And one of the things being is that he thought this piece of placenta could have been a creter where it's grown into the lining of the uterus. And that's why it hasn't come away with the manual sweep. Now, the... The dangers with that going in to have a DNC is that uh, with the curette, it's like a sharp instrument. So if they go in and slice that off, that is going to cause another hemorrhage. And, you know, if you can't stop the bleeding, that'll lead to a hysterectomy. So that's worst case scenario going into this procedure best case scenario they can do a suction curette under ultrasound guidance now far out the emotions running high i'm obviously sleep deprived and highly emotional and just in disbelief that i'm back in this position having to have another dnc and plus it's another procedure where they have to dilate my cervix so like if i do want to do decide to try for baby number three like that's just another surgery to add to my tally but the scariest part of it all was going in there and not knowing what's going to happen and how i'm going to be when i wake up so it's just been an absolute bloody roller coaster so getting all prepped for the dnc and one thing I don't like about surgeries in public hospitals is that you have no idea what's going on until the next day when the um, doctors are doing their rounds. But because I'd like to speak to the doctor and find out exactly what's happened. Um, but yeah, go in for the DNC, wake up, and they have just been able to do a suction curette. So it has been a piece of placenta that's, you know been missed and they were able to remove that now obviously amazing that I haven't had to have a hysterectomy but I don't know what the state of my uterus is I can I can pretty much put money on the fact that the Ashermans will return but it's just going to be a matter of time of you know waiting to see when my periods come back what they're like And I think it'll be pretty easy to make a judgment call when that's happened as to whether the Ashermans has returned or not. Now, if we don't want any more kids, you know, who cares? It's fine. I don't, as long as I'm not in any pain, like as long as my cervix hasn't been scarred over and my periods can't get through because that's what causes pain for, for people who have that happen to them. Um... As long as that doesn't happen, there's absolutely no reason to treat it at all. If we do decide to have baby number three, and it's very much up in the air, I could not tell you one way or another whether we're going to go down that path or not, it would require, you know, another trip to Sydney to 
have the ashermans removed, PRP treatments, go back to having acupuncture and yeah, it just being a really, really nerve-wracking pregnancy pretty much. So that was a very condensed version of what went down. It was a really emotional time. That happened at three weeks postpartum. As of recording this, I will be eight weeks postpartum. Can't believe how quickly that time has gone. But yeah, it was just, (laughs) I was hoping my story would have ended with the birth, but no, let's just chuck something else in there, keep things interesting. And yeah, so, but I'm all recovered now. I've had no more bleeding. Pretty much the week after the procedure, the bleeding had all stopped and, you know, everything's back to normal. So now it's just a waiting game to see what happens with my period. So yeah, that's that little update. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Messy in the Middle. My main goal for creating this podcast is to ensure other women going through the struggles of infertility and baby loss don't feel alone along this very isolating journey. I want to be able to reach as many women as possible. And in order for me to do this, I would really appreciate if you could subscribe and leave a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. Also, if you have any feedback or suggestions of what you'd like to hear, please get in contact with me through the Messy in the Middle Instagram page. Sending you so much love and strength on your journey to baby.